five-year-old osprey nest, Southwest Harbor, and maybe Gilligan's Island. The beauty will slay you. The fully covered sea princess means we can go with rain, dear. While we share potluck finger food, festively arranged on the engine box, we bring our own beverages, binoculars, cameras, and good cheer. All proceeds support WERU-FM Blue Hill Community Radio, and tickets are $20 per person with children under 12 free. It's a jolly time, and the cruise usually sells out with only 50 seats available, so avoid being mauled by the last-minute shoppers and sign up now by calling WERU during regular business hours at 469-6600. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center providing comprehensive reproductive and sexual health services for all women of all ages and all stages since 1984. Insurance, main care, dirigo, and self-pay accepted. MabelWadsworth.org. It's one minute after 10 o'clock, and it's overtime for Healthy Options. Hello, I'm Rhonda Feynman, and today we'll be taking another look at Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses. Our guests are Beatrice M. Santier, MD, and Constance Happy Dickey, RN, who have returned to the Healthy Options program to offer information and discuss challenges and strategies in dealing with ticks and Lyme. Dr. Beatrice Santier is a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics, a member of the American College of Physicians, and she is board certified in both internal medicine and pediatrics. Dr. Santier came to Maine almost three decades ago. It's adding up. Be, through the National Health Service Corps, and for the past 20 or so years, she has spent thousands of hours investigating Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders. She currently participates in the State of Maine Vector-Borne Disease Work Group and is also a member of the Maine Medical Association and the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society, or ILADS. Dr. Santier has lectured on Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders to professional community groups throughout New England. She, she has also given testimony before the Maine legislature concerning Lyme disease in the state of Maine, and she also serves as the medical advisor for Maine Lyme, a nonprofit dedicated to decreasing the prevalence of Lyme and related tick-borne diseases in Maine. Constance Happy Dickey is a registered nurse from Hamden, Maine. She worked at Eastern Maine Medical Center in Bangor for 25 years, and since 1999, she has had a special interest in Lyme and other tick diseases and has spent much time and energy researching tick-borne illness. Happy Dickey is a former board member of ILADS. She facilitates support groups for people with Lyme, both in person in Maine and online, and she's also an advocate for patients with Lyme disease. She's traveled extensively with Dr. Santier, educating medical personnel and the public about Lyme disease. Happy Dickey is a founding member and board member of Maine Lyme, a nonprofit group dedicated to awareness and prevention through education and advocacy. Welcome back to Healthy Options and WERU, Beatrice Santier, MD, and Happy Dickey, RN. We're very glad to have you both here today. Thanks, Thanks, Rhonda. Great to be with you. Thank you. So it's a new year, a new season. What do we know? Is this a, a, a 
How are the ticks doing this year? Yeah, very well, maybe. Or? <laughs> yeah, they're out and they're hungry. Um, yes. There have been well, as of the beginning of May, there were already a hundred cases of Lyme disease confirmed by Maine CDC. So that's a that's a an average start to the year for us. Um, I think uh, case numbers last year were down a little bit. They're over twelve hundred. Um, and when I say a little bit, it really is a little bit. The overall trend is still um, a trend upward for Lyme and for the other illnesses that are carried by the same ticks, anaplasma, babesia, um, and uh, anaplasma and babesia. I guess those are mm-hmm. the big three, Lyme, anaplasma, and babesia. So, Bartonella, not so much these days? Well, or You know, Bartonella is not a reportable quote, okay. reportable disease. So we aren't keeping track of that. Okay. Um, I always throw question marks around Bartonella, not because I don't think people are infected with it, but because uh, although we know ticks have it and although we know people get it, we have never uh, actually proved transmission by tick. So there are other ways that you can get Lyme, uh, get Bartonella. So. Okay, I see. Okay, well, we'll get into all of that. We, we don't want to start confusing people right off. Um, so even we can look at it, even though it's down just a little bit, maybe the word's getting out about how to protect. Let's let's be optimistic. Maybe not. Nah. Nah. Uh, what I've observed over the years is that there has been a trend uh, so that, you know, uh, sort of every third year or so, we take a little dip and then we see it rise even higher. I so see. the overall trend is still It's still going in upward. the other direction. But let's be optimistic. I hope we are getting the message out. I hope people are hearing that uh, prevention and early recognition are their best options. So let's let's dig in a little bit. Um, let's talk uh, for some people um, who may not be familiar with this. It's it, and there are still many people who don't think about ticks. What is it that we're worried about? What's what is Lyme disease? What's what are these infections? that we're, we're not even calling them co-infections anymore. They're just other things that ticks carry. And we'll, we'll, I'll let you tell me what that is all about. Well, Lyme disease is a multi-systemic bacterial infection that's uh, transmitted by the bite of an infected tick. Um, in its earliest stages, it usually presents as a rash and some flu-like symptoms though not everyone who gets Lyme gets a rash, and not everyone who gets Lyme gets flu-like symptoms. So it can have a variable presentation. In its early stages, it's readily treatable. Um, If it is not treated early or if it's not recognized early, it can go on to become a systemic infection, a, a spread infection, and that can lead to problems involving not only the skin but also the joints, the heart, the nervous system, and uh, neuropsychiatric issues. So it can become a, a, a really huge problem. And at its later stages, um, including uh, arthritis and, um, um, and, as I said, cognitive brain thinking dysfunction. So um, in its early stages, very readily treatable. In its later stages, more difficult to identify, to diagnose, and to get rid of. So we think uh, preventing it is your level best choice, and identifying it early is second best. And it's high tick season. This is the um, most uh, active time for the stage of tick that transmits human Lyme disease, and that's the nymph. 
and the nymph is about the size of a poppy seed, so it's not that it's more infected than the adult tick, which feeds later in the year. It's that it's more easily missed if you're not actively looking for it and either avoiding it or finding it early and removing it properly. Oh, so are we in the nymph stage now? Did we are. Yes. Yeah. And how, when does the... Generally, it starts around May. Um, okay. So uh, the, the nymph starts looking for its blood meal. There's one blood meal per tick's life stage, and the tick we're specifically talking about is uh, Ixodes scapularis. There's a quiz on this later, so... Uh, Please, if you're driving, pull over and <laughs> write, it, write down, it down. Right. Yeah. Um, but Ixodes scapularis is commonly called the black-legged tick, um, often called the deer tick, and um, it's generally a small tick. Uh, the adult reaches sizes of about a sesame seed. The nymph, as I say, is about a poppy seed. Um, and it becomes active this time of year. It's either uniformly dark or two-toned in color. That's one way you can distinguish it from some other ticks. Two-toned because I, a, a dog tick would have a white spot. But when, so when you say two-tone, you're not meaning that. No, there are no um, white markings on these ticks, but it's um, a kind of either a reddish-brown with dark dark brown or black, or sometimes it appears almost a whitish color with dark black. But this two-tone top-and-bottom distinction, oh, as see. opposed to a dog tick, which would tend to be a browner colored tick, slightly larger, and it would have lacy white markings on its back, what I kind of refer to as racing stripes on the back of it. Mm-hmm. They don't quite look like racing no. stripes. But mm-hmm. that's the, I, And that's a fairly reliable way to distinguish because once ticks tar- start to feed, using size to tell whether it's a large or small tick is really it obscured. It's obscured. You just can't just tell. Just can't. So. Okay, so for those of you, well, you know, I think there's some pictures also on the, which which website is a good one? Um, there, are, there are some which great red websites. Happy, well, which, to see what ticks look like. The Tick you, Encounter resource, um, Facebook page or tickencounter.org is a really great place to look for tick pictures and they have videos, um, lots of good information um, okay. there. Okay. And, so we'll have all that on the website as well, and we'll we'll be mentioning them throughout the show. So, you're at, what what do we do? What what what's what do we do to uh, save ourselves? <laughs> Is that being too dramatic? Are we saving ourselves? No, just protect well, ourselves. Well, yeah, you know, life has just changed again. We need to learn how to be outdoors safely. And um, because ticks have become a part of our environment and increasingly throughout the state, um, we just need to learn how to uh, be aware of what is tick habitat. So uh, tall brush, grassy areas, um, the edge of the woods is particularly a a high-risk area. And then um, personal protection measures are the thing that we can do at this point that are most helpful. So avoid those tick-infested areas, or, and, uh, wear light-colored clothes. They're dark-colored ticks. And it doesn't have to be heavy clothing as it gets warmer. Lightweight clothing is fine, but cover up. Um, Tuck your shirt into your pants, your pants into your socks. Create a barrier from the ground up to your wrist. And if you treat those 
clothes with a substance called permethrin, which is um, toxic, in fact, killing for ticks and mosquitoes. Thank you very much. If ticks get on that clothing, they die. That allows you very little area where you would be needing to use any kind of repellent, but using repellents in addition to that probably sets you up to be as safe from a close encounter with a tick as you can be. Once you come in from your outdoor activity, toss your clothes into the dryer on high heat, that kills ticks. They don't like it hot. They don't like it dry. Um, if you put them in the wash, they can survive that. In the dryer, not so much. Um, how much time in the dryer? It's being looked at. It has been said about an hour in the dryer works. Nobody really looked at less than that. So uh, there are some studies underway, even as we speak, to try to determine how much time you really need them in the dryer. Um, I, I do want to say, if you have a newer dryer that has a thermostat, you have to put something wet in the dryer because if you put won't. something dry in, it will say, well, it's dry. we're done. Oh, is um, that interesting? So, yes, you have to put a wet towel or something that is actually well, let's hope right. the studies are looking at that yes. because if they right. don't look at it in <laughs> real life, it's not going to help us. Exactly. So. Yeah. And then do a tick check. Right. Take a shower. That'll wash off any unattached right. ticks. But do a tick check. Look and feel all over, right. particularly the hot spots behind the knee and the groin, at the waistband, at the bra line, and the armpits behind the ears and the scalp. Um, thorough. And feeling because they are, as we said, tiny. So if you're not feeling for a bump, you might miss it. So everybody is sitting at home itching now. Um, they're crawling around. They are, but not necessarily right where you are. Maybe they are. Um, the point is, you know, I'm talking to so many people who are absolutely terrified to mm. now go out in the woods. They're not. I loved hiking, but no, I can't possibly do yeah. that now. I love kayaking maybe i could be on the water but how do i get my kayak in you know um so there's just a lot of fear and um are you encountering that as well or it, well or yes or, or does a fear or denial it goes in right it's kind of both extremes it, it's yeah. it's such a challenge because until it comes close to you or is you it's it's pretty easy to ignore this right. on the other hand our goal has never been to make people afraid to be outside. The goal has always been to just get people aware so that they can be safely outside. You know, uh, we grew up in the years when no seatbelts were worn and our parents careened down the highways with us standing up in the back seat at 80 miles an hour. And if we're here to tell the story, we were very fortunate. And then we learned to buckle our seatbelts and, and we saw you know, fatalities fall. Uh, we also lowered the speed limit, but that that notwithstanding. But we've learned to buckle our seatbelts. We've learned most of the time to put on our life jackets when we're getting in that kayak. This is one more thing that because life has changed, because we have new knowledge and uh, have learned ways in which we might protect ourselves and limit our risk, we just need to learn to do it. it it's I hope it doesn't terrify people. Um, though there was an article in the Appalachian Trail magazine that uh, pretty much said the most dangerous animal on the Appalachian Trail is the deer tick. Well, so, there you go. But yeah. so being prepared is the way to go. Prepared. So let's, yes. 
Um, along with B's um, comments on being prepared, I think that there's a lot more um, products out there now that make being prepared a lot easier for people. It used to be such a chore to permethrin your own clothes, make sure that everybody had their tick spray on. You still need to do that, but there are companies who are providing products that make it less work for you and and things that you can incorporate into your wardrobe. Um, the the new company um, from the Skowhegan Kingfield area is Dog Not Gone. They have permethrin-treated vests for dogs and horses. They have now people clothing. Um, they do vests that you can just throw on over your normal clothes when you want to go out into the garden. They have gators. Lots and lots of people have asked for gators for hiking um, and working outside on the lawns, etc. They now have gators um, available. Insectshield.com also offers lots of products. You can buy their clothing. And it's expensive to do all at once, but if people start um, using the mindset of, I need to incorporate this into my regular Mm -hmm. habits, um, they can use these companies and use these products and make this a whole lot easier for themselves. So I, I do want to say that no one here on this show has any connection, connection. to any of these <laughs> no. companies. Um, what we are saying is that, that there are places that have that are filling a need. I know you can buy Promethean, right, um, and apply it to your own clothing. I believe that it's only a number, a limited number of washes, four out of seven, um, I think when you get these, some like Insect Shield, you could do it 70 times. I don't know what their magical process is, but they do work for the military. <laughs> well, <laughs> Whatever you think of that. but uh, <laughs> well, And you can send your own clothes to Insect Shield, and they will, for a, a pretty modest fee, I, it used to be $10, I don't know if it still is, they will treat your clothing item and you, it, whatever their process is, you get the same bonded right. thing, 70-plus washes or what is thought to be the life time of a piece of clothing. Why Why gators? Is that... Yes. Well, great question, Cause, because ticks crawl. The way they get around is to crawl, and specifically, they crawl up. So if you are in vegetation that's ankle high, you'll find the tick at about your ankle if you are in vegetation that's about elbow high, the tick is about at your elbow. So if you're treated from the ground up, if you have gators from the ground up, that sets you up to be pretty well protected for that crawling agent that's going to come up your leg and try to make its way. And if they perish on the way up, happy day. I, I, you know, I don't wish death to any creature, just so, you know... <laughs> But I do want to protect people, and that's certainly a way to yes. do that. Yes. I think people think gators are a lot more attractive than tucking your pants into your socks. <laughs> Just the Personally. Oh, okay, so now, this is but, great. Lime, so practical and real, right? But you can carry them in your car and just throw them on. Throw them you on. Know, if you don't have the right clothes on. I mean, it's just See, that's easy. really, that's great. And I'm, I'm very pleased that this is being inter- inculcated into the culture. So now we're looking for designer, <laughs> designer clothing to protect us as we go out why not whatever oh my goodness what a great idea (laughs) okay quit your day job this is it okay so you you tuck your 
pants into, into socks. The socks. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, all right. But you're listening to Healthy Options on WERU Community Radio. Just to, if you just tuned in, I'm Rhonda Feynman, and today we're discussing ticks and Lyme and other tick-borne infections with two very knowledgeable and experienced individuals. Dr. Beatrice Santier of Lincoln, Maine, is a board-certified internist and pediatrician who has spent several years researching Lyme disease. <laughs> She has lectured on Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders to professional and community groups throughout New England. And Constance Happy Dickey is a registered nurse who has spent much time and energy researching tick-borne diseases. She's an advocate for people with Lyme and facilitates several support groups online and in Maine and also assists, assists with educational programs for healthcare professionals and also the public. So again, and you're on listening to WERU. So we're learning about Promethean, which you can put on your clothes. What are there's also Percarin? What what are these? And DEET? What do people have all these feelings about these? What? Why do we use them? And how well, effective are they? Repellents um, are useful on skin. Uh, Promethean is useful on fabric, so clothing, tents, gear, those kinds of things. And once it dries in, it is safe and effective at. Um, keeping ticks and other arthropods away. Um, for your skin, however, uh, permethrin is useless. So on your skin, we use repellents. And the way that they work is they interact with body heat and with body oils and set up a vapor layer that is unattractive to these biting creatures. So uh, DEET is the gold standard. It's the one by which we are measuring everybody else's effectiveness. 60-plus uh, years of safety and efficacy data, and it has been approved without restriction through the EPA. Um, we usually tell folks at least 23%, more than 50% um, does not improve its performance but may, may increase its potentials for um, bad interactions. To safely use it, the key is to wash it off after you've finished your activity. Um, the trouble, if any, that's been seen, uh, that's been predictable at least, has been when high-dose applications have been put on repeatedly over an extended period of time without removing it, washing it off in between. So wash it off. Uh, never on the backs of hands, not on the backs of kids' hands. A, you can see the backs of your hands, and two, kids' hands make it to their eyes and their mouths, and so we don't want it to go there. Um, picaridin used at 20% is uh, a botanically derived uh, but now synthetic uh, uh, repellent. At 20%, it is as effective as DEET, um, and in some studies, actually, more effective. So one to look at, its claim to fame for, for our purposes is that it is better tolerated by individuals who have chemical sensitivities. Um, and the third that uh, comes to mind always is IR3535, which used to be available only in Avon Skin So Soft Bug Guard Expedition formula, but is now available in other products as well. So uh, one to look at for people who prefer not DEET. It has been studied at 15% and found to be equivalent to DEET. The claim to fame for this one, you don't have to wash it off in between. I am such a simple thinker. Please wash it off. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I've actually felt a little. 
I, I don't do a lot of chemicals, and when I no. go out and I've used that, I feel a little funny. I have just wash it, it off. Is it in mind over matter? But I, you know, yeah. I wash don't it think off. so. We'll wash it off. And and I guess the real key to using all of these uh, chemicals safely: read the label, find out what it does and what it doesn't. If it's EPA registered, it has been reviewed, and that means they have had to provide safety and efficacy data, and that's good news. And they, you can find out how long it's likely to work, and is this particular product you're looking at active against ticks. If it doesn't say it is, you can't be sure that it is. Mm-hmm. And I know um, there must be a lot of listeners out there um, having a lot of uh, reaction to what we're just what we're talking about in terms of using DEET and these kinds of chemicals, and the idea that it it's safe at the right percentage is maybe news or may not be believed. <laughs> well, <I know. laughs> but uh, what can we say? If, you, if you're using more natural chemicals, basil oil or lavender or all of that, do know that you have to reapply that very, very frequently. And I mean within a half hour, 45 minutes. So you'll be spending a lot of time applying that. These, I think that's pretty much... Well, unknown. Just if you are choosing to go that route, make sure you're applying well, because, frequently. Because they are household products, um, the, uh, the EPA does not require that they be reviewed. I think there's only one that has had EPA review, and that's oil of lemon eucalyptus. Mm-hmm. And right. um, it is generally, it is approved, but it has, if you read the labels, very short duration activity most of the time, not all of the time. So read the labels. And the toxicities are not well studied for any of these um, oils so that although we anticipate that they're safe, you know, because you can ingest a small amount of a substance safely, uh, we can't draw the conclusion that you can therefore rub it all over your skin in large amounts repeatedly right. with equal safety. Mm-hmm. So from my standpoint, it's all chemicals. You have to use discretion, use your head, get as much information right. as you can. Right. Whether it's a natural chemical or a synthetic chemical, it's right. it's a chemical. Let's talk about the um, interesting concept of tick removal you have done all of this you've done your tick check and lo and behold there was a a a failure there was a a a malfunction a (laughs) chemical malfunction somewhere and lo and behold there you there you have an embedded tick i in my practice i think i talk about this all the time and i'm still hearing from people very interesting ideas about how to remove the tick and it's what we talked about earlier if it we listen, we hear. If it's not on our bodies, we realize we have not paid attention. And so strange things happen. Um, perhaps you can instruct us on the proper removal of ticks. Okay, here, here's Dr. Santier. Yes, please. Okay. Um, the best and studied methods of removal are Tweezers, fine-nosed tweezers, as close to the skin as possible with the tick and with steady, gentle pressure, lifting straight up, not yanking, not twisting, pull the tick out. It comes out with some difficulty because it has a barbed mouth part 
and it has a cuff of a cement-like substance that's anchoring it so that it can do its job, which is to feed until it's full. Steady, gentle pressure. Watch that skin tent up and pull it out in that way. Put the tick in a plastic bag if you've got one. Wash your hands. Wash the bite site. Wash your instruments. Save the tick. We'll figure it out later. Or a tick scoop studied equally effective. Um, They look like kind of a teaspoon with a V-notch in the front of it. If you push down a little on the skin and wedge the mouth parts in that V-notch and move gently across the skin, so this isn't a pry bar, we're going to move right across the skin and wedge that tick right into the V-notch and you have a tick in your hands. Again, wash your hands, wash the bite site, save the tick because we may want to know what it is and what it's carrying. So those are the do's. Those are the do's. Please hear this do not list. Do not try to burn the tick. Try to wash the tick with dish soap. Flood the tick with dish soap. Do not try to suffocate the tick. Do not annoy the tick. All of these things may result in a short-term attachment, which might be very safe and innocent, becoming a problem attachment, an infected attachment. If you delay the removal or if you irritate the tick, it may regurgitate what's in its gut contents, and that regurgitation may lead to infected gut contents being shared into that wound. So don't delay it. Don't create a slippery tick. Just grab your tweezers, grab your tick scoop, and remove it. Mechanical removal right away. And it does take a bit of effort. It does. Because of the barbs. They go in and they want to stay there. It's a very efficient engineering system. So I did have to take a a tick off and fortunately it was not carrying anything so I I was uh, lucky on that. But it took, I was so surprised how much effort. I was being gentle but you did have to put a little force behind it, and I could actually hear a thump <laughs> when I took it out. I have very good hearing. So it was like, whoa, this thing was in pretty good. And um, I just want to tell people that it's not, oh, my goodness, it won't come out. You do have to carefully, no alcohol, no dish soap, no lighter fluid. Okay. <laughs> no, just, just Don't annoy the tick. Don't annoy the okay. tick. Just pull it out. So, a lot of times people don't know they've had a tick, even with tick checks, or what What do we do? And we should really go into some of the symptoms. How do we know? What What do we do if, uh, again, we're... Well, in, in fact, most people who get Lyme disease never saw the tick. Um, it's a very low percentage in, in the data that we have assembled of people who actually saw a tick and then developed Lyme. Not unheard of, and we were talking about this on the way today, that on occasion we can see the rash developing with ticks still attached, an engorged tick with an erythema migraines rash developing. Some folks may have seen um, Sharon Rose Vosnes' report or um, post on Facebook about um, a a person she is acquainted with who had such an experience. And and it's just... um, 
it's not common for it to happen, but if the tick is filling to repletion, you know, generally it takes some amount of time for that tick to transmit infection. Um, so that what is the amount of time? We used to say it was 72 hours of attachment, and then we said it was 48 hours, and then we said it was 36 hours, and now we're saying on uh, Maine CDC offers 24 hours. The fact is that it's not well known. It's been looked at in um, animal models in the lab, but there have been reports of Lyme disease transmitted within four hours of attachment that have been documented, and, and I personally got to see one of those cases myself. And so it is not a, a, a straight line from, you know, right. zero. It, it increases over time. But if a tick has fed long enough to appear to be actually engorged, it has fed long enough to transmit infection. So don't deny what your eyes are seeing. That's, I guess, our first advice. Um, usually, uh, Lyme will develop three to 30 days after a tick attachment, but that's a usually. We know that the range is probably one day out to months, and if the symptoms of early Lyme are mild enough, you might not even notice it. The rash of Lyme, um, although it's often talked about as a bullseye rash, and that is the classic rash, it's not the common rash. The, the more common appearance is a uniformly red expanding rash, and it usually has no symptoms. It is not itchy. It is not painful. If it itches, it's mild. If it's painful, it's a burning, but it may have no symptoms, so it can go completely unnoticed. Or the other symptoms one might develop, headache, a little feverishness, a little achiness. You know, maybe it's a mild experience, and so you don't even pay much attention to having it. You know, we all know when we go to get health care uh, provided for us, when we can't stand something for one more minute. So it's possible to have these early symptoms and let it be unrecognized. But if you do see a rash, and it, and it is an expanding rash, that's likely to be Lyme disease, certainly this time of year. We encourage people, get attention. And an expanding rash with the right story of exposure possibilities needs no further investigation. That is Lyme disease and needs treatment. And, okay, we'll, we'll talk about some of that, uh, yeah. ideas about treatment in a minute. But um, so you have the tick, you've taken it out, but you're not sure if anything has happened or you didn't. Uh, so sometimes there is this idea that we should do uh, two two doses of doxycycline what what are your thoughts on that yeah that that is actually a fairly common practice now to give two pills at you know one time take this and it's the result of a recommendation um, uh, based on one study um, the study used as its uh, endpoint, the development of a rash. And unfortunately, what we know is not everyone who gets Lyme disease gets a rash. In that study, the reported information was that it was about 80% effective in preventing Lyme disease. But when you probe a little bit below the surface, what you learn is only if we define it by the rash. There were individuals in the study who developed um, summer flu-type symptoms actually had their blood tests convert to a positive Lyme test, and they were not counted 
as cases of Lyme. So if you review those those pieces of information, they weren't trying to be sinister. They had to mm-hmm. use some definition. I, I, it's just not for, effective for people's purposes. Uh, probably the best efficacy is about fifty percent, which frankly surprises me to no end that it is that effective because I would think with this being a slow-growing bacteria that a single dose would not have the opportunity to be that effective. Mm -hmm. So so can it cause harm to do that? Well, the other thing that was seen in the study and is not just a theoretical, therefore, but actual confounder is that if we give antibiotics early but do not actually clear the infection with them, people can have their antibody response turned off. So now six weeks later when you show up really sick and we try to figure out if this might be Lyme, uh, we get a negative blood test. Now if, if your provider is fully aware of this and is not going to be halted by that negative test at that point, then I, I have less worry about trying that single-dose doxy. But in general, I think it's not a good recommendation. It makes everybody feel better because we're doing something, but we may be causing harm. We may not do as much good as we think we're going to do. Mm-hmm. And it, it leaves it as a bad recommendation. So often um, there are labs that you can send a tick to and and check like the university of massachusetts amherst i believe is one and we'll have some info about that as well so and they check for um a lot of the other infections anaplasmosis we mentioned uh babesia we mentioned what about ehrlichiosis Uh, they don't although you can request additional tests i mean if that were a consideration generally ehrlichia isn't transmitted by um the the black-legged tick there are other ticks that are responsible for that so so not probably necessary most of the time never say never never say always i guess the confusion people have is well i'm not i don't have a rash i'm not feeling badly um but i did have an embedded tick now what and we know that there's a question about the two do- doses. Yeah. We, we've learned that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what? Um, from a Western point of view, do, you know, I, the, the, I, does someone go on three weeks of doxycycline right at that moment? Uh, that's a great question. And some, or, uh, or a month, yeah. some physicians we'll would recommend that. that the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society treatment guidelines recommend um, treatment with three weeks of an antibiotic. And it's extrapolated data. You have to understand it is not based on a specific study. It's based on um, a study in mice as well as some combined Mm -hmm. data from uh, 10-day trials of antibiotics that unfortunately showed no statistically significant results because right. not enough people got sick. Right. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. so we don't know. We don't know. We don't okay. know the right answer. Okay. On other levels, and yeah. we can. This will be another show. Um, <laughs> there's an idea of there. Well, there, herb, herbal, Chinese yeah. herbs. There's different homeopathic uh, ideas that are out there that I've seen uh, be very effective, and sometimes the idea if you're sending your tick off is not to not do anything for that week or so but when you're finding it out so often doing an herbal that is geared towards the do we want the immune system to be working then is this what this is pretty much what we're doing we're trying 
that's why having the antibiotics, which would suppress the immune system, could be questionable. Right. So if we want something that would help the immune system, we can do that while waiting for, for things. But the idea of just sitting, the wait and see seems very so 20th century well, to me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Great. as only you could phrase it, really. But wait and see is not a prevention strategy. It's an early recognition strategy. But, you know, it's, it's not prevention, the wait-and-see idea. If we do, um, if it is decided that antibiotics ought to be started, if we want to try to prophylax, to prevent Lyme disease, it really needs to start within 48 to 72 hours of that tick attachment. So you're precisely right in that waiting for information about the tick does not help us. Um, so you have to make the judgment at the start, and the things that might guide you in that judgment are the things that I consider high-risk pieces of information. If it's a, a deer tick in a highly endemic area, which the whole state of Maine pretty much is, if there's obvious engorgement of the tick, that means it's had enough time to feed and transmit. If uh, attachment time is completely unknown, and even when we think we know, we usually underestimate. Or if the removal was complicated, if that tick broke as we were removing it and so fluids may have spilled in, those things contribute to what I consider to be a high-risk bite. And you might consider uh, prophylaxis. And if you do, you need to start at that time and not delay. Sending the tick off for testing can be informative, and yet it's not a perfect system either. So if we learn that the tick is infected but the person is well, what do you do now? If you learn that the tick is not infected but the person is ill. Was there another tick? Was there another tick? Is this another illness? So I think sending it off does not tell you an absolute. It just provides more information so that you have more understanding as you go forward. So if you've had an un, a, a, a difficult removal, yeah. ready, you're in high risk. It's high Why risk. wait? Perhaps you might Maybe. consider that. You, and if you have the tick, if the tick didn't come off, you saw it, and I've had people come in and tell me this, oh, I saw the tick, I couldn't get it off, and then it wasn't there. I'm thinking, well, I think what happened is the tick fed and then it fell off. Therefore, high risk. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Um, if, okay, so we're saying, at, at one point, I think you were saying 60% of ticks in Maine? Do we, how do we know this, or do we not know this? You know, Would be it, infected it, with something? That's, that's, that's a great question, because yeah. it is a, a patchy sort of distribution. You can have highly infected uh, populations in one area and not far away from that have not so highly infected. Yeah. I think in Bar Harbor recently, they were uh, they did do a drag and did a study, and of the sample, they found some 60% to be infected. Um, no in offense, that area? Yeah, no offense, Bar Harbor. At, in that area at that time. At that moment, so sure. There have been places with 80% infectivity rates. There have been places with 5%. Right. So we don't have an absolute number. Most of the time when, um, when people suggest that you multiply the likelihood of infection times the likely time of attachment, we hardly ever know either one of those numbers. Right. <laughs> so, right. Okay. So, so in hard. real life. Okay. So it's hard. Just if you, people are just tuning in, um, you're... 
tuned in to WERU Community Radio. This is the Healthy Options Program. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're speaking with Dr. Beatrice Santier and Constance Happy Dickey, RN, about Lyme disease and other tick-borne infections. We're getting into that tricky area of uh, how to treat, um, at least at the very beginning. And we can talk, uh, there's a, another conversation about, wow, this happened, my doctor gave me 10 days worth two years ago of antibiotics, of doxycycline, which, and now I've had permanent problems in my joints. I've had a lot of weakness in my limbs. I've been a little foggy thinking, 10 days, you know, what do we know? And, and, you know, then we're dealing with a more chronic situation. And I know, again, there are homeopathics, there are herbs that we deal with. I would also like to know the variety of antibiotics or whatever that we would that could be in the arsenal yeah. we, we look at the whole spectrum of treatment options well uh, always a, a challenging interesting question um, I think the earliest earlier studies of Lyme looked at uh, several different antibiotics and the duration of treatment and generally uh, three weeks was felt to be the place to start um, some folks have looked at that since and suggested that with three weeks of either doxycycline, tetracycline, amoxicillin, or cefuroxime, there were still treatment failures. Um, and the treatment failure rate was about 25%. Well, 75% is good, 100% is better. Um, the good news is that in those studies, when people, quote, failed treatment, that is, either went on to develop late stage of Lyme or were not well at the end of treatment, retreatment worked. So based on that, some recommend um, treating early Lyme with four to six weeks of antibiotics. But what I usually try to encourage folks is that how much at the beginning may not be quite as important as doing careful follow-up. There are some things that um, were identified as being likely to need longer treatment if you are severely ill at the start of the infection at the start of treatment you are more likely to need longer treatment if you have neurologic symptoms at the start of infection that probably means that this is although you thought it was a localized infection to the skin it's actually a severe infection or a spread infection so neurologic symptoms are likely to need longer treatment. Um, multiple rashes at the time of diagnosis means it's a spread infection. People are likely to need a longer course. And then individuals who at the end of whatever course of treatment you identify as your starting place, if they are still unwell, it, they need probably longer treatment. Those were the indicators uh, that have been able to be identified up until now. Um, there have been a lot of papers produced that try to indicate we need less time. Uh, 10 days is as good as three weeks, but 10 days and three weeks mean that we're talking about 25% failure rate. Mm -hmm. So I just think the, the key from my standpoint is follow this up. So I think, so what you're saying is the failure it was the follow-up perhaps perhaps the failure was saying oh it, it was sort of saying well you've had 10 days that should do it right versus 
just seeing the individual and the case in front of you. And and as we know, as medical practitioners, you treat what you see. Yeah. It's not everyone's not the textbook. Right. So so that's one aspect of it. Well, and, and the other confounder, of course, is is this still Lyme or is there something else? Right. So a People differential one at a time, individualized, careful, so, careful care. So you may really have MS. Even though the neurological piece can right. mimic MS. You may really have a cognitive something. Right. You may really have a different kind of depression. Right. But it's not just the tick bite that you had, which, of right. course, and, it's, and this is really a clinical diagnosis. So, Well, it could, be, it could be one, it could be the other, or it could be both. And what we know is that whatever the other might be, if you also have Lyme, it makes it worse right. because it is immune down-regulating. Right. So. Right. So we, so, you know, so we want to keep our immune system in good shape, even if we are struggling with even during treatment, because it really gives so eating well, resting, exercise, all the things we know to be true, which can be difficult if you are not feeling well. Absolutely. So there's the catch 22 there. And somebody uh, did have a question about stevia, which I thought was a sugar substitute. So, but somehow it's used with antibiotics. Is that the case? What do we there, know about that? There yes. has been some uh, some activity looking right. at um, uh, different compounds, whether they are um, uh, medicinal uh, chemicals or right. herbal medicinals, right. um, that are active against biofilm. And stevia is one of those that has uh, been looked at under the microscope and found to be active against biofilm. What is biofilm? Well, there. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, open that Pandora's box. But, oh, well, very quickly. But, yeah, okay. yeah in, in persistent illness, there are several um, things that need to be looked at. Is, mm -hmm. the, is it permanent damage? Is it the immune system activation that needs to be turned off? Is it an inflammatory response that needs to be turned off? Is it persistent infection? And if it is persistent infection, is it because it is existing in biofilm, which is a kind of a conglomerate of bacteria in a matrix that protects it? What's really funky about biofilm to me is that those bacteria don't even have to be the same kind of bacteria in colony, and they communicate really Kind of mm. really fascinating. Uh, there are some common biofilms. Uh, plaque on your teeth is a biofilm. Um, there are others. People who get endocarditis, that's a biofilm. So okay. th this is not foreign concept. It's just being applied now in, mm. in Lyme. So there are some folks who are looking at biofilm and treating that. In addition to that, there are cell wall deficient forms of Lyme people often call it a cyst form. So it, it rolls up and protects itself when it's in a hostile environment, say, exposed to antibiotics. And so once it's doing that, it can be more challenging then to treat um, that infection. Is that what's driving the inflammation? Is that what, what's driving the autoimmune or immune response? You know, who's to say? There's a lot of interesting research being done. But we do have really rather good evidence that these things exist and need treatment. Um, some of the most interesting research being done right this minute is out of Johns Hopkins and out of Northeastern University looking at what they call persister organisms identified in other infections previously. Um, certain bacteria develop forms that can withstand our usual antibiotics 
And so things like leprosy, uh, mycobacteria leprosiae, or tuberculosis, mycobacteria tuberculosis, have been known for many years to have persister forms. And some current research is trying to identify antibiotics and combinations of antibiotics that might be effective to get at those persister forms, which uh, really kind of shut down and aren't active, but can rear up 12 months later. Good mm-hmm. evidence to demonstrate that these things happen. Mm. Um, a recent study was published as a sort of a pilot look at some uh, impact to folks who have had long-standing uh, Lyme disease with and without some of the co-infections and using some of the medicines that have been identified as effective against other persistent organisms. And it, there's some optimism that that this may be um, mm-hmm. a new path to investigate for some people. So stevia, which is the sugar sugar substitute, sugar substitute. we think may possibly. But yeah, I think Eva Eva Shapi did some work looking at this oh. out of the University of New Haven. Um, so it's stevia in the lab as opposed to stevia it, in the it's people. It's not what you buy in the sugar it, pack. It's, no, it's... <laughs> right. right. Just like garlic, if, is, it, when you take it medicinally for Lyme, you're taking it at such a dose you could not eat right. as much. Right. And then, of course, everyone around you knows no. that you have not eaten <laughs> right. all of that. But um, so there's those, those kinds of, of, of uh, <clears throat> research being done as well. Yes. And then, of course, I think perhaps some of the other uh, treatments with certain homeopathics and such, I think they're working on the biofilm rationale as well, that when the cyst happens, well, wh- how can you, how do you open that up? How do you express that so that the body can rid itself and the immune system can be strong again. Yeah, so, yeah, getting back to the you know the age-old argument: is it the bug or the terrain? Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. Is so. it the bug or the terrain? And so, so for uh, somebody asking about that, there's really it would not be perhaps without other treatment. That may be an additional. It may be the antibiotics. It may be other kinds of whatever. Yeah. But it's not unto itself doing the trick. So I think that was... Yeah, I I think we don't have data. I really also think that especially um, some of the people we might deal with or are listening, that there's this idea that antibiotics are something that we don't want to ever take or very limited to take. And so it's it's really as a mindset. I, I think... Even earlier when we were discussing Promethium, which is from Chrysanthemum, by the way, and Deed and all of that, the idea that we're even having this conversation is, okay, now we accept we're going to do this. Right. How do we do it safely? So now the same thing yeah. with these ideas of, of a spectrum of treatment. Right. You know, and I, w- I would say, too, because doxycycline, which is, and also treats some of the co-infections, Precisely. does it not? Yes, it does. Um, so if, if, if this is right at the beginning, it really seems like a great choice to be able to, if you can tolerate it, yeah, <laughs> and a great choice to be able to deal with something very early. And we talk about preventative medicine and early intervention. And then we get into, in addition, using these other aspects. Yeah. I, I think you make a great point, Rhonda. It, we're not trying to get people all worried here because, in fact, we're, we are still talking about 75% of people do well. So, But early, uh, attentive, aggressive treatment is a good idea. 
and that prevents some of the later consequences. Even with early treatment, we know that 10 to 20 percent of people conservatively estimated by CDC go on to have uh, difficulty. And if we're guessing that nationwide we have 300,000 cases per year, that's not a small number of people. But hopefully if what we do is follow up our first treatment and try to get people well at the beginning, and those who don't get well, consider these other factors, consider other infectors that may be coincident, and try to get that managed. I, I think the other piece that I, it sounds, what I'm hearing is, even if people are doing, what else could this be? It seems like you have to get treated. <laughs> well, so what I'm saying is, so if it's a clinical diagnosis and this may be it, we have to, you know, what are the pros and cons? Look, this could be MS. You could have a brain tumor. <laughs> you could have uh, heart disease. You could have all of this. However, you're having these symptoms. You've had this tick, and you may not have had the rash, but would there be harm other than the harm of doing, you know, three weeks? or I mean, what the harm of doing a month of doxycycline that you may not need? But... You know, those are the that's that's, that's what the, you're weighing. The, the every way, time. What you're weighing you have to is pick it your poison time. and and weigh your right. It's sort of like of yeah, it. let's look and see. I may have this, but if this really is Lyme, and this is right happening right now, yeah. Let's what if what what if I take this and then I get better, you know? Right. And what if or well or I, I find yeah. I'm it, not I'm not much of a shoot from the hipper. <laughs> I, I never have been. Right. Still not. I'm going to weigh and balance every time, but what I advocate over and over is the individualized, careful assessment. There are ways to look at it. There are ways to try and hedge your bet right. because nobody wants to use antibiotics willy-nilly. On the other hand, we do not want to deny them to people who need them. That's it. So it's the cautious, safe use of antibiotics in the best possible assessment and evaluation for the good of an individual. So what we're doing is um, really looking at prevention. Let's do the Prometheum. Let's do these repellents. Let's do our tick checks diligently. Due diligence, everybody. You know, especially if you're out in areas where you know that this exists. Right. And I know areas that have just become infected. Right. I used to walk on this trail at one tick. Now I see seven, you know. So um, do that, and then when it comes time to treatment, treatment, really think about how you've removed the tick, think about how you're feeling, and think about um, the idea of getting early treatment as well as a differential diagnosis when needed. There you are. Okay. So we've done it again. <laughs> you've been listening to Healthy Options on WERU Community Radio. Thanks so much to our guest today, Beatrice Santier, Dr. Beatrice Santier, and Constance Happy Dickey. RN. I would also like to thank John for engineering and Petra Hall for production assistance. And thanks as always to all of our WERU listeners and supporters. If you've missed any part of this program, it'll be online soon at the audio archives at WERU.org, along with links to many helpful websites with Lyme disease, about Lyme disease and other tick infections. You can also listen to previously previous Healthy Options programs on Lyme disease and ticks at our radio audio archives at weru.org. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and I'm wishing you all good health. 
Support for WERU comes from Susan Bakley and Chris Marshall at the 13th Moon Center in Montville, offering shamanic healing, art from the heart, through art, therapy, and classes since 1985. More information is available at 13thmooncenter.net.